Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. Connor will be in 1 Corinthians 1, 10-25. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say and that there be no division among you but that you be united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I might mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and elegance, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those who God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than human <laughs> and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. And I'll just pray for Matthew as he comes to preach to us. Uh, Father God, we thank you that we can meet together in your name and look at uh, this passage from your word. Father, I pray that you speak through Matthew and you use him to reveal a little bit more of who you are to us today. In your name I pray. Amen. 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 Thank you, Connor. So guys, on the On the 1st of April uh, 2018, something happened around the world that has not occurred since 1956. And I'm not going to get a show of hands to say who knows what that is, because I didn't even know who who and what that was prior to two weeks ago. But on the 1st of April 2018, it was both simultaneously April Fool's Day and it was Easter Sunday. So it was a day in which pranks are pulled, white lies are told on one hand, and yet on the other hand, all around the world, Christians are celebrating the disarming of Satan and the defeat of death through the glorious resurrection of Jesus. And yet for many people, whether it's in Dublin City or any of other cities around the world, it seems that this is a perfect contradiction. It's a perfect contradiction. We've got Easter Sunday and we've April Fool's Day all rolled into one, and it's super ironic And we're going to find that as we spend 12 weeks now in the book of 1 Corinthians, we're going to see that the city of Dublin where we live and breathe and have our being, where we are, is not all that different to the city of Corinth. Dublin is not all that different to Corinth. 
And the church today, the CCC and, and the other churches all around the city wrestle with the very same struggles that the church in Corinth wrestled with back then. And we're going to see that the message that we have armed ourselves with today, the message we've armed ourselves with today appears as weak, it appears as foolish, and it appears as lowly as it did to the Corinthian church 2,000 odd years ago. So Christ of the church, if, if we want to be an effective church, if, we, if we're going to be an effective witness in the city of Dublin this year, then this part of 1 Corinthians chapter 1 tells us today that we, there's two things we need. It's on the screen behind me. Two things to be an effective witness for Jesus here in Dublin is that we need clarity of mission. We need clarity of mission that is going to unify us. And we need confidence in a foolish message that's going to empower us. And this is what we're going to look at today. But the challenge for us is this. It's not how much we are in the city, but how much of the city is in us. So the challenge is not how much we are in the city, but how much of the city is in us. Because it, it was no different in Corinth. The city of Corinth was a large metropolis. It is the most important and impressive Gentile city in the region of Achaia. I mean, it, it, was, it was class. If you look at the map, Corinth is the place that you are drawn to. If you look at the map of Ireland, unless you're from Cork, the place that you are drawn to is Dublin. If you're from Cork, everyone's drawn to Cork. But the city of Corinth was, well, it was the place to be. It is known for its people. It, it, it had a seaport. It was a major trade center. It was an economic hub. It was bringing in people with ideas, bringing in people with money, bringing in people with their gods, and all these new practices. It, it, it was a melting pot of culture. It, it was where everything was happening. But it was also known for its religion. There's all sorts of gods being worshipped in Corinth. There were statues to the Greek god Apollos and, and the goddess Aphrodite. It was a religious hub. It was known for its sport. Corinth hosted the biennial Isthmian Games, which is second only to the Olympics themselves. Corinth was a really sporty city and is known for its sexual promiscuity as well. So the society didn't just put up with, with immorality. It was leading the charge in immorality. Uh, to act like a Corinthian was to be sexually promiscuous. Such was its association. And so here we have Paul writing this letter to the church in Corinth, a small church, a young church planted in the city. And the Apostle Paul is writing to the church because of concerns that he had received. And so the church had many problems. We're going to see that over the course of these next 12 weeks. And I mean, we might even be tempted to consider that these guys who Paul wrote to weren't even Jesus followers at all. Such are the divisions and such are the issues going on in the church uh, but last week, as Jez shared, we heard that who exactly Paul was writing to. And we may think that these guys aren't even followers of Jesus. But you see what it says at the very start of 1 Corinthians chapter 1? Paul was writing to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and those called to be his holy people. Guys, this was a really messy church. This is a church who many of us may, may not even darken the door but this is what it says at the very start of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people. Christ City Church, we have so much to learn from these Corinthians. But hear this, it is not from a, a superior vantage point, but as others, as, as fellow strugglers, um, fellow followers of Jesus, who too have more of the city in us than Christ in us. So we're not all that different from the church in Corinth. So let us jump in then 
two things to be an effective witness for Christ in Dublin. First of all, clarity of mission that unifies us. You know, so Paul's just opened the letter, and as he's opened the letter, he's given this word of thanks uh, for the church. And I don't know how often you spend on the phone, but whenever somebody phones you, you have a bit of small talk, you have a bit of chit-chat for the first minute, minute and a half, and then the person that phones you says, oh, actually, the reason I'm calling you is, and you're like, ah, oh, here we go, this is the real reason why they're calling. They didn't want to know about my health, my, my granny, my lifestyle. They didn't want to know all this. Here's the real reason. I mean, it's how we all start our phone calls. We get about 30 seconds and maybe a minute in, and then we tell people what we really want to say. And this is where Paul has got to. He's got to the main point of the letter. The reason I am writing to you, verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. No small task. You know, even though Paul planted the church, even though he was an apostle, capital A, and he had the authority, look at how he handles the church when he writes to her. He begs them. Look at them first words in verse 10. I appeal to you, I, I, I beg you to be unified as believers, to keep the main thing the main thing. Because the church in Corinth were tearing themselves apart from the inside out. And given that all that's going on in Corinth we're going to hear all about it in these weeks to come. But at the very start, Paul is addressing divisions, quarreling, and disunity. And the thing is, these things might not seem like the most obvious place to start. Why, why don't you go and start with all the, all the big things? But it seems that Paul is hitting on the low-hanging fruit, the easy ones before the really controversial stuff. The thing is, the church was at risk of being ineffective in the city, not because of the externals, because externally they looked super impressive. They were an impressive bunch. They had all the gifts. They lacked nothing. I mean, they, maybe they looked like what we looked like. Who knows? Externally, they were impressive. But really, there was internal divisions. At the heart of their divisiveness lurked the real problem. is their own self-importance and their own arrogance. In other words, their pride. What made Corinth Corinth was its pride. Pride of promiscuity. Pride of its sporting heritage. Pride of its religious accommodation. We will accommodate for all religions and none. We have got gods for this, that, and the other. You name it, we've got a God for it. And the thing is, the church looked no different. The church had its factions. Verse 11. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me there are quarrels among you. I could just imagine receiving this letter and I'm one of these factions and, and I'm saying, oh, it's Chloe's household then that told you this. Oh, that's interesting, given what I know about her. I mean, you have all these factions receiving the, this letter from Paul, and they're here hearing it. Chloe was the one that snitched. Oh, my word. I would not want to be Chloe that next Sunday. But Chloe's household has informed me that there are quarrels among you. And I really hope the guys got it. I hope the guys didn't absolutely nail Chloe. But really, they, they actually took a look at themselves, because Paul goes on to say, what I mean is this, one of you says, I follow Paul, another I follow Apollos, another I follow Cephas or, or Peter, and still another I follow Christ. So they'd separated off, they had their factions, they had their groups. You've got Paul, the spiritual group, you've Apollos, and Apollos was a, was a Greek thinker, he's a Greek preacher, and he had this sophisticated group. You've Cephas, you've Peter, the real serious group, the guy that followed Christ. 
And then you have Christ, the group that follows Christ, you have the holy ones. You know them ones say, oh, I, I follow Christ. I, I don't need another preacher. I don't need a, another church. I, I don't need anyone else. It's just me, me and Christ. You have all these groups. They've separated off, and Paul is absolutely horrified. And he quickly argues, and he says, is Christ divided? Well, surely not. Or on, on, what basis, on what basis are you going to follow Paul? In fact, was Paul crucified for you? Were you, in fact, were you purchased by the precious blood of Paul? Absolutely not. And do you notice, he uses himself. He doesn't knock Apollos or knock Peter, but rather he knocks his own group. Because, I mean, if he went and he knocked Apollos' group or Peter's group or the Christ group, they would all say, ah, oh, but look, he's just trying to knock their group and he's trying to build up his own. So he uses his own. Of course Paul wasn't crucified for you. Of course you weren't bought by the precious blood of Paul. And he goes on to say that he, that he thanks God that he didn't baptize any of them except maybe Crispus and Gaius. And you can imagine as he is, maybe he's writing this letter himself or perhaps it's a scribe with him who's writing the letter. And he says, guys, I thank you that I didn't baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. And as he's saying, he's like, oh, sugar. In fact, he remembers there was a household of Stephanus and maybe a couple of others. And beyond that, he doesn't remember who else. It seems quite ironic that uh, what's written is nearly his train of thought. You know, what we're being shown here, and it's funny, what's been shown is that it does not matter. It does not matter. The power of baptism is not in the person doing the baptizing, but it's in the spiritual reality it represents. Paul said, I don't even care. In fact, I, I, I don't even care if, if I've baptized these people because it does not matter who it is that's doing the baptizing. It's the spiritual reality it represents. And so you've got all these divisions, these factions, which were killing, and I mean killing, the Corinthian church's zeal and vitality for the gospel. Their pride was smothering the gospel through their own petty preferences. Remember back to, to Jesus' high priestly prayer in, in John 17. He's just come from the upper room with his disciples, and, and he says, Father, I pray that they may be one as you and I are one. Christ is not divided. You know, whenever, whenever you split, you reflect on the church. You reflect on Christ. The church is one because Christ is one. And Christ is one because God is one. Here Paul is reminding the church in Corinth that their ultimate allegiance is to Christ and Christ alone. And that the, in the gospel of Christ, our self-importance, our self-importance comes to absolutely nothing. There is no place for our pride. There's no place for our selfish ambition alongside the gospel. And you know, Paul knows that what he wins them with, he wins them too. And you know, if, if what wins you to church is cake, then you can be sure it'll take cake to sustain you at church. If you've come along to church because you've been promised A, B, C, and D, and you, you've been promised all these good things, then what is going to keep you at church is A, B, C, and D, and, and all these good things. And this is one of the dangers that we can face. Whenever we promise keep people cake, they're going to need to be sustained on cake. If we promise them Christ, then they're going to be sustained on Christ. But it's often exposed whenever we don't get our own way or whenever our preferences are overlooked. And, you know, maybe it's the songs that we sing. 
you know, I, I don't like that song, or I wish we sang that song differently, or that, you know, that's not the song that I would choose if I was a worship leader. Or maybe it's the version of the Bible we used. I, I was brought up in a different version, therefore, I think that is the version we should use, not this one. So we form our little holy huddle, we get our little cliques, we get people around us who will agree with us, and before we know it, we've got our own factions. Or perhaps it's how we do communion. Or maybe it might even be the preachers. You know, such and such is preaching this Sunday, therefore I'm not going to go. It's ironic I say this to you guys. I should really be saying it to the people who aren't here. There is no place for hobby horses in, in Christ's church. There is no place for our hobby horses in Christ's church. These factions were tearing apart the church in Corinth from the inside out. And in our pride, we run the very same risk of anchoring ourselves uh, to a bunch of things that Christ never did. And so Paul goes on, and if you take a look at verse 17, take a look in your Bibles, verse 17, Paul summarizes the priority, his priority in the face of all these factions, and his priority is this, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. You know, Paul is saying that the gospel, the message of what Christ has done for you and I, is being rendered powerless by our attempts to be impressive, by our sheer excellence. Why? Because people are going to be more taken by me than my message. People are going to be more taken by me than our message. And by adding to the gospel, they were in fact taken away from it. And I can just imagine... I just imagine that, that if Peter heard about this or Apollos heard about this, I'm sure they, they did, Paul definitely did, you can just imagine how horrified they would be that the Christ that they are proclaiming has kind of been put on the back burner because the people who are being put on the pedestal are actually the proclaimers, they're the preachers, they're Paul, they're Apollos, they're Cephas. And they would be horrified at the fact that Christ has been set aside for them. And this is one of the dangers that we have to face. You know, whenever I've been asked about my faith, whenever I've been asked by others about my faith, I'm so tempted to share about my wonderful church community and so tempted to share about, about my church family who provide a serious amount of support and friendship and stability and joy in my life as I live and breathe in this city, I'm tempted to share about the confidence and the hope that I have for this world and my optimistic worldview that gives dignity, that gives value, and that gives love to others. I'm tempted to make in following Jesus palatable. I'm tempted to throw a little joke in, tempted to throw a caveat in there to smooth things over. Let me tell you this, I am tempted by my own pride to win people to Christ without the actual gospel of Christ. And then as I stand there, I respond to this guy, another guy called Paul. He doesn't yet know Jesus. I respond to him and I tell him, because he's asking me about it, and I'm so tempted to, to, to make Jesus so palatable. But then I, I tell him and I respond to him, I, I'm a follower of Jesus because I'm convinced that he lived a life that I should have lived. And he died the death that I deserved. And he paid the price on the sin, or sorry, on the cross for my sin. He paid the penalty I deserve and he rose again on the third day and he rose to life and I choose to follow him. I choose to submit and surrender my life to him. And the thing is, it's lost on him. You can see his eyes glazing over. 
You see, the conversation wanted to quickly change. They were standing there in the pitch, and it's awkward. It's lost on them, and in fact, it's ridiculous. It's foolish. And perhaps it's my approach. Perhaps it's my lack of charisma. Perhaps it's my stuttering or my lack of fluency. Or perhaps it just sounds like it belongs on the 1st of April. Perhaps it sounds like a message that belongs on April Fool's Day. It sounds foolish. And let me tell you this, Paul isn't against preparing words carefully, not at all. In fact, Paul, Paul is class at preparing words carefully. But Paul's not against being eloquent or wise, but he recognizes that these things can get in the way of the message. If his eloquence or, or his wisdom or how he speaks get in the way of the message, people are going to be more tempted to follow him than the Christ that he proclaims. Christ said to church, if we want to be effective at reaching this city for Jesus, we've got to be unified in our mission by killing our pride, killing our self-importance and our arrogance and begin proclaiming the good news of what God has done in us through the person and the work of Christ. Our message today is the very same message that Paul anchored himself to. It's the very same message that the church in Corinth received. And you know, the very same pride that grips and gripped the heart of the church in Corinth is the very same pride that grips our hearts today. You know, it was to the church in Rome that Paul wrote and he proclaimed so boldly in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. He says these words, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. This is the gospel. But Matthew, you said it yourself, it sounds so foolish. And you're right, it does. It does sound so foolish. But you know, if we want to be a, an effective witness to Christ, we need a clarity of mission that unifies us. But secondly, we need confidence in a foolish message that empowers us. And you know, Paul, Paul continues in verse 18. And he goes on to say to them, guys, there, there's two basic reactions to the message of the cross. Two basic reactions. First of all, the first one is it's foolishness. The message of the cross is foolishness. Verse 18, to those who are perishing. So to those who reject what Christ has done for them, it is foolishness. The gospel seems absurd. It seems absolute nonsense to them. You know, our, our English word moron is derived from the Greek word for foolishness. So those who reject Christ look at the cross as moronic. And maybe you have you've shared the gospel with somebody before, whether it's a colleague or friend or family member, or maybe just a whole pile of people, and they've looked at you as if you've got 10 heads. It's more likely that they're looking at you and thinking, you're, you're actually quite moronic. You're acting like a moron. Why? Because to those who are perishing, the gospel is foolishness. Later, in chapter 2, verse 14, Paul goes on to say that the person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they're discerned only through the Spirit. So the message of the cross is foolishness. In fact, it's moronic to those who are perishing. That's the first reaction. The second reaction is the message of the cross is the power of God to those who are being saved. You know, the, the message of the cross brings a great eternal hope because 
if you love and follow Jesus today, that what you have is deliverance from the guilt of your sin. What you have are the chains of the bondage of sin broken off entirely because of what Christ has achieved for you at the cross. And what you have is the power of Christ at your disposal to live lives of worship and response to his goodness for what he has done for you. You know, our hope of eternity with God lies in the finished work of the cross and that alone. And let me say this, there is no middle ground. There's no middle ground here. There's two reactions. There's no third. Each and every one of us are either perishing in our sin or being saved from it. And it all comes down to what we do with Jesus. And I want to ask you, what have you done with Jesus? Are you perishing in your sin? Are you being saved from it? And the answer to that comes down to what you have done with the person and the work of Jesus. And the thing is, while there's two different distinct camps here, there is one thing that each and every one of us here have in common. And it's this, the message of the cross is an absolute offense to our ears. If you're a follower of Jesus, the message of the cross is going to be an offense to your ears. If you're not a follower of Jesus, the message of the cross is also going to be an offense to your ears. Look at verse 20. Paul continues and he says, where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? So whether it's the empires, the Babylonian empire, the Greek or the Roman empires, or whether it's the Jewish scholars or the Greek philosophers of the day, the point Paul is making is that, is that no one can do for you and I what Jesus Christ has done. It's an offense to the religious folk. It's an offense to the Jews because the Jews are demanding signs. And so many times in the gospel, Jesus was, was doing his ministry the Jews had come up to him and they're saying, show us a sign. If you show us a sign, then we'll believe. And the thing is, Christ had shown them many signs, but still they didn't believe because their hearts were hard. They thought they had God figured out. They thought they'd God in a box and that God would act the way that they thought he should act. They thought the Messiah would come with, with these manifestations of power and majesty that would deliver Israel from, from the yoke of Rome. But to them, a crucified Messiah was a complete contradiction of terms. They kept asking for more signs before they would believe because they were spiritually blind. You know, a friend of mine is always asking for a sign. He's always asking for a feeling, always looking for a new experience. And he's like, Matthew, I'll, I'll come to your church tomorrow afternoon if God gives me a sign. You know, if I get two goals and an assist today, I, I, I'll be there 100%. And first of all, it's not my church, it's God's church. Secondly, God, for flip's sake, give him the goals and the assist. Give, give him it. Hope he'll come. He'll come and he'll see that his need for signs is completely rubbish. The sign of Christ's resurrection still wasn't sufficient for the Jews. To them, Christ has become a stumbling block. And to so many, Christ has become a stumbling block. It's not just an offense to the religious folk or to the Jews. It's an offense to the Greeks. It's an offense to the educated, the philosophical folk. It's an offense to the elites. The Greeks of the day were zealous for all kinds of learning, it was said. The intelligent Greek took great pride in their wisdom and reveled in speculative philosophy. But the thing is, if there is even a hint, a hint of anything supernatural that is completely rejected, is completely mocked, but the thing is, God cannot be found through human wisdom, but only through the message of the cross. So let me say this. 
The message of Christ trips up, trips up both the religious person and the rational person. The message of Christ says to the religious person, and, and the message of Christ says the very same to us. I suspect that we could be said to be the religious people. Your good works, your lifestyle, your choices, your sacrifices, your generous living, your tithing, your good reputation does absolutely nothing to earn your way into God's graces. But the message of Christ also says to the religious person, this is good news, that you are freely received by me on the merits of what I have done for you. Come. Not because of what you've done, but because of what I've done for you. You know, the message of Christ is a complete offense to our ears. It's a complete offense to our pride. But it's also a sweetness to our soul if we receive him. You know, it also says to the rational person that, that your philosophical endeavors will come to naught whenever death comes calling. That you cannot approach God on the, on the basis of your own wisdom. God says, no, 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 I don't take you on the basis of your own wisdom. Your wisdom is foolishness to me. You must believe in the foolishness of the cross. You see, the cross humiliates us. The cross completely humiliates us because it disallows our works righteousness. It disallows our wisdom in finding God. Because if you could find God on the basis of our wisdom, then what you would have are intelligent, elite people who have found God because they are wise. But what happens then to the person like Maffey and the other people who are not wise and who do not have this degree of intelligence, they cannot find God? God doesn't receive us on the basis of our intelligence or our merits. The cross humiliates us. And you know, the cross shows us just how vile and horrendously filthy sin is. You take a look at Christ on the cross. I don't know if you saw the film, The Passion of the Christ, but it is PG-18, it is brutal. And you have on the cross Jim Caviezel, who has lost a serious amount of weight, who is so mentally and physically unhealthy because of the role that he is playing. And he is beaten and he is bruised. And I tell you this, that Jesus Christ on the cross was far worse than Jim Caviezel on the cross was. And Jesus was filthy, he was vile, and he was rotten. Do you know why? Because he was full of sin. Because he was bearing in that moment your sin and my sin. That is why the cross is humiliating. Because on the cross, Christ bared our sin. As we look at Christ on the cross, what we see is the effects of our sin. And Paul resolves to know no other message the world rejects it, but he says, I preach it. He says, we preach Christ crucified. And you know, Paul was intelligent. He was a Jew to the Jews. In Philippians chapter, I think, 3, he goes on to show just how great of a Jew he is, but he goes on to say that, that I count all these things worthless for the sake of knowing Christ. He was intelligent. He reasons in the, in the, in the book of Acts with the Greeks so he, he knows what it is to be a Jew. He knows what it is to reason with the Greeks. And he says, no, I, I, I reject that. We preach Christ crucified. It is a cross that is so offensive because what the cross says is that your sin is bad. It says, Maffey, your sin is bad. But what the cross says is also your goodness is of no help. And it says what, that what you think is a wise and religious way to God is completely useless 
Christ City Church, we need to make sure that the message of Christ does not trip us up. You know, Glenn Shrivener so painfully offers four alternatives to the message of Christ. And this struck a chord with me in my preparation. We so often offer them cool. You know, you don't have to look weird to be a Christian. You can still be the same. We make following Christ all the more palatable. And we offer them credible. You know, you don't have to be stupid. There are Christians with PhDs. We can be clever. Look, there are famous and well-educated people who are also Christians. Therefore, what we're doing is we're making Christ more presentable to them. Or we offer them creeds. Here are the different doctrines. Here's a worldview that makes sense. Here's why it makes sense to be a follower of Jesus. Here is why Christianity is a good fit. So we offer them a creed. Fourthly, we offer them, we offer them courses. And I'm, I mean, I, I love courses, but we offer them the ABCs of Christianity. We say, come along to a course. Come along to this on Thursday night. Come, come, come along. And all of a sudden, what, what we've ended up doing is we've reduced our evangelism down to offer them cool, credible creeds and courses rather than offering them Christ. And sure, you might be saying, but yeah, Matthew, we'll offer them these and then, then we'll offer them Christ. I want to believe you. The reason I don't, the reason I don't is because I find the the alternatives more attractive and I suspect you may as well. Some of the reasons we fail in our evangelism is because the alternatives are more attractive. Being cool and credible and, 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 and having the right things to say and bringing people in the right courses seem to be so much easier than offering people Christ. And often we don't rely on the power of the Holy Spirit. And then thirdly, we don't actually believe that people will become Christians. We believe that the power of the cross is sufficient to save us. But we don't believe that for the other person. You know, like, God, yes, you've rescued me, but do I really believe that you're going to draw these people who I work and live with to, to you? Often we don't. And often we refuse to submit ourselves to a foolish message. And I think this is one of the scary things. We're too intelligent for the foolish message. We, we've got other ways of wrapping the gospel up. We've got other ways to communicate it. We, we, we've got new styles in order to try to bring this message to a 21st century people. You might say, Matthew, well, what worked back then for Paul works really differently today. We can't communicate the same message. Let me tell you this. We can. Whenever we submit ourselves to the foolish message of the cross... What we're actually saying is, God, if this person comes to faith in you, then it's because their heart has been strangely warmed by your gospel. It's because of what you've done in them that they are turning to you. And this should give us an incredible freedom. Can I just invite the band back up, please? But Matthew, you don't have to turn up at work day in, day out with these people. Uh, and you might be saying, but I, I, I do. And it's not that easy to share it with them. And I agree, it isn't that easy to share the gospel. But what else do you have to share instead? What else comes close to what Christ has achieved for you and me on the cross at Calvary? You know, as we finish up, let me ask you this. How beautiful is Jesus to you right now? I want us to reflect in these these, uh, words from a a verse uh, by Hillsong Worship called At the Cross. It was released years ago. Look at the words that says, At the cross I bow my knee, where your blood was shed for me. There is no greater love than this, 
You have overcome the grave. Your glory fills the highest place. What can separate me now? You tore the veil you made away when you said that it is done. Christ said, church, the cross is the final word. The cross is the centerpiece of Christianity. It is foolishness to a perishing world, but it is the power of God to all who would put their trust in it. And one day, one day, the whole world will see the power of the cross. If you're able, will you stand? I'm going to pray. The band are going to play. Father, may we be a people who at the cross by our knee, convinced that your blood has been shed for us. And Jesus, I thank you that there is no greater love than this. And I, I pray that we would have a, a, a renewed confidence and a renewed zeal in the power of the cross. We thank you, Jesus, for what you have achieved for us on the cross. And we pray that you would empower us and you would send us out. Jesus, I pray that your spirit would go before us and would empower us to communicate this foolish message to a world who, who are longing for more. Jesus, we thank you that you have overcome the grave. And we thank you that nothing can separate us. And I pray that, that as you empower us, the Lord, there will be a, a great unity about your church, about Christ City Church, and all the other gospel churches here in the city, that we would be unified in our mission to reach this city with the message that Jesus saves. So Jesus, we thank you that the cross is the final word. Thank you, Jesus, that you did not remain on that cross, but you rose again, that you have defeated and you have disarmed the powers of death and that you reign victorious. And I pray that as you strengthen your people today, that you would send us out with a renewed zeal and a renewed vigor. In Jesus' name, amen.